here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest lived and traveled all over the world working as a documentary producer and writer. Ghosted, her American debut was a New York Times bestseller and has sold more than one million copies worldwide. The Love of My Life is her second novel. She lives in Devon, England with her partner and two children. It's my pleasure to welcome Rosie Walsh. Rosie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This show has the best name of all the shows. You win. Thank you. Thank you so much. We try hard. Our initial logo was uh, a roll of toilet paper, but we have now classed it up. Um, so just so you know that. So for our listeners, I got The Love of My Life a few days ago. Um, I don't always get the books in enough time, but I do try and race through them before I do the interviews. And holy freaking hell, Batman, this book 
has kept me up at night. It freaking blew me away. And this book inspired me to offer the course that I'm going to be offering on specificity because I am going to be encouraging people to get this book. And we're going to talk about freaking specificity when it comes to writing. But before we do that, Rosie, I want to kick my own ass that I did not get ghosted because I remember seeing it everywhere. But for some reason, I don't know why, was it the cover? It made me think it was like a like a rom-com, which I wasn't really in the mood for then. I don't know. Is it just me that's, that's being an idiot there? I mean, I think you're being a bit hard on yourself. You know, we can't love all the books. It was probably the title. I mean, you know, it was called Ghosted. And ghosting is generally a dating term, isn't it? Here in the UK, it was called The Man Who Didn't Call, which again, you know, it sounds like it could be a book about dating. You know, oh, I went on a date with a man who didn't call. No one's interested in that. <laughs> well, listen, I'm going back now and I'm getting the backlist and I can't wait to dive into that. So for our listeners, I'm, I'm going to read you some of the flap copy. Here we go. Emma loves her husband, Leo, and their young daughter, Ruby. She'd do anything for them, but almost everything she's told them about herself is a lie. Dun, dun, dun. She just may have gotten away with it if it weren't for her husband's job. Leo is an obituary writer. Emma is a well-known marine biologist. When she suffers a serious illness, Leo copes by doing what he knows best, researching and writing, but this time about his wife's life. Yet as he starts to unravel the truth, he discovers the woman he loves doesn't really exist. Even her name isn't real. Now, okay, Rosie, these twists and turns, the only time that I have been, that I've had the kind of foundation ripped under me like this was with Claire McIntosh's I Let You Go. This is the kind of book you think you know what the hell is going on. And then you find out, you know nothing, Jon Snow, and you've got to go back and reassess everything. Can you tell us how you construct this kind of story? Because you are withholding so much information, and yet you are making it such compelling reading. Now, I don't want you to give away spoilers, but are you a plotter? Are you a pantser? Let's talk about how you, you set about constructing the story. I mean, the short answer is I'm at times considered a brain transplant. It made my brain ache. I would come out of a writing day just absolutely boggled and trying to talk to people and just sort of not even being able to quite focus my eyes on them. But a slightly more elegant answer, I guess. <laughs> I am a plotter. And I have been for most of my books. And unfortunately, with this one, I was forced to be a pantser and I did not enjoy that experience at all. I sat down to plot it, you know, bought all my post-it notes and, you know, had all my pens and, you know, cleared a space on my wall so I could do the post-it note craziness. Did not work. Um, I don't know what went wrong. I, it was just, it's just such a fiendishly difficult plot to hold together. There are so many red herrings and tiny clues and little seeds sewed in and then, you know, sort of all sorts of distractions and other bits and pieces. I don't know if it was that or if it was just I didn't quite know how to reveal the past tense story because obviously with a mystery like this, there is always going to be a massive past tense story and no one wants a massive information dump after a midpoint twist. That's 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 not elegant, I don't think. Um, so I just could not figure out how to do it. So in the end, not without a great deal of reservation and pure terror, actually, if I'm honest, um, I decided to just, just try and write the bloody thing. And it was terrifying. And to my horror, <laughs> when I got to the midpoint twist... I still had absolutely no idea how to do it. 
it. Luckily for me, I have a writing partner. And if it wasn't for her, I think I would have just thrown my laptop in the river and given up on this. Um, Because over months and months and months and months, we pulled it apart and put it back together and pulled it apart and put it back together until we found a way of doing it. Um, So this was not an easy process. And I don't have, you know, some sort of brilliant gem or jewel to share with any listeners about how I did it because it was it was just a process of constant struggle if I'm honest (laughs) constant struggle that in itself is is excellent advice though because you know I often say to my creative writing students the only way out is through and you don't know that something is not working until you've written it that way Mm. and then you realize oh shit okay that's that's not going to work back to the drawing board let's let's start again or let's re order the, 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 the information, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that feels like wasted time, but it's such an integral part of the process. It is actually. And when people talk to me about, um, you know, people ask me for tips for aspiring writers, you know, where would you start? I share the only piece of advice that was given me, which turned out to be an absolute corker, which was just write a book because you will only learn from writing a, you're not going to learn from writing a blog or a short story or an essay or any other form of fiction you're only going to write uh, learn from writing a book and doing it badly and getting stuck and if you manage to get through that stuckness and keep on getting your bum on the seat and turning up showing up at your desk every day no matter what and trying to solve it bringing in any help you possibly can then you will probably make it (laughs) Um, whereas I think a lot of people you know they'll write short stories they'll start writing novel and think shit this is really hard I can't do this and then they they stop which I you know I've I have endless sympathy for that I would love to stop sadly I'm contractually obliged to finish my books these days so I don't have the luxury of stopping when I get writer's block um but yeah it's it's through the making mistakes that you know that we end up with decent books and we improve as storytellers and so I yeah I I think the only the only possible way is through and the only way through is to start off from the very beginning with writing full-length novels. Yeah, yeah. And and before we get into the specificity and all of that, in terms of genre, you know, it's kind of called a suspense, but I've looked on other sites and some kind of refer to romance and some say women's fiction. And I think that's all true. I think it straddles all of these lines. It's, it's a novel that really blurs and straddles genres. When you sit down to write, are you concerned with genre? Is this something that's in your mind or is it that this is the story I want to tell and I'm just going to try and tell it as best as I can and then I'm going to leave it up to my publisher to figure out what the hell it is? I mean, in short, it's the latter. Um, but that's... <sighs> That's a slightly tricky position to be in because, you know, a million times over the years, I've had people tell me about their sort of cross genre thing that they're writing. And, you know, I'm always polite and interested because I am interested, but I am also thinking, oh, God, that would be a very, very difficult one to sell. And, you know, I can see quite quickly now how pitchable something is to an agent. And if it's not pitchable to an agent, then how on earth is it going to be pitchable on submission to a bunch of editors? Um, So it's it's a tricky it was a tricky balance for me between uh, writing the story that I wanted to write um, and having some commercial awareness. But I think, you know, writing, uh, crossing over between two more obscure genres is one thing. But, you know, I'm crossing over between two massive genres, you know, love stories and, uh, you know, mysteries or thrillers or whatever. In fact, somebody described it the other day as an emotional thriller, which I thought was absolutely spot on. 
I, th- I think that that covers it far more than domestic suspense because domestic suspense makes it sound like, you know, sort of housewife who's considering murdering her husband or something. <laughs> the, the thriller of this novel is, is you know, is the emotional journey that, that, that both of them go on. I mean, primarily, you know, initially Leo, as he discovers that the love of his life is quite literally not who she says she is, but also Emma too, as she realises she's finally, finally about to, uh, to be exposed and, you know, her attempt to try and convince Leo that she does nonetheless love him. Yeah, I, I think emotional thriller sums it up perfectly. I think that should now become a, a subgenre um, because that's also how we as readers get so invested in the story. Um, and, you know, with my first novel, up until page 50, there was something big I was trying to hide. And so I know how difficult it is to write the kind of story where you want the reader to think they know everything, they have all the facts, but you have got to be so careful with your word choice. You have to be so careful with what you say because you're trying to create one impression while you want them to come back and read it again and go, oh, I was there in plain sight all along. And this is something that I discussed with um, Mark Tavani. He's an editor at Putnam. Uh, he edits a lot of thrillers. And we were saying that the best kind of twists are the ones that they were hiding in plain sight all along. If you had just been paying attention or accessing the information differently, you would have figured it out as opposed to a novel that suddenly on page 300 reveals that, you know, she's always had a twin and it was the twin who did it, you know, and you feel robbed as a reader. But how I think you managed to do this was endearing both of these characters to us, that we were invested in in them as people. And how you did that was with specificity, like these people, it should have been such a mundane story, husband, wife, child, but it was so singular. So can you tell us in terms of when you're coming up with character development, you've given them both really interesting jobs. And I understand that the jobs that they have feeds into the plot because you needed her to be at certain places at certain times and you needed him to be doing certain things. But the the occupations were really interesting. How did you decide on on those and how did you research them? Because, you know, I'm assuming you are not a marine biologist. I don't know why you would think that. Um, however, you are correct. <laughs> and just looping back to me, you said at the beginning that question, actually, that's such a great point. You really do have to drill down to individual words when you're trying to mislead readers, but in an honest way, rather than, as you say, just developing this entire other person who happens to have the same name or something. Um, you know, they're, 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 I had to do an edit just on pronouns, you know, to try and because I didn't want to mislead readers. I wanted them exactly, as you said, to come back and go, ah. Okay, so he in this bit is not he, the he that you think, oh, very clever. Yeah, so Emma and Leo's jobs. Emma's job for me was a selfish choice. Uh, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to bring the natural world into this novel because for me, the natural world has sort of become a third character in my novels. You know, it really informs plot and character. And Leo's Leo's job was sort of how the, the book began, actually. I was really fascinated with the bit trees. But the, the research process was heavier than any research process I've had. Um, I really believe in immersive research, like heavy immersive research. It's not enough to just read a bit and talk to a few people. I've got to actually embed myself in, you know, in a laboratory or a television studio or, you know, whatever, a newspaper, news floor. Or, um, I need to spend quite a lot of time there. And similarly with my sort of writing about the natural world, I need to spend a lot of time outdoors with the notebook. And when I wrote Ghosted, I mean, there were times where I'd quite literally go to the valley where the book is set and sniff the air. <laughs> at different times of year because 
you know, looping back to specificity, the air smells very different when you're standing outside on a, in a woodland in autumn, you know, in September than it does in July. It sounds different. You know, they sound different. A woodland will sound different at night and at three in the afternoon. Um, so for me, that 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 level of specificity and detail is is key to how I bring these people's jobs alive. Um, so it's not just immersive research into their careers and their offices and their places of work and where they live. It is sometimes just a question for me of just being outside, just 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 being in a place with a notebook, sometimes for hours. That came through so much. It, it felt like cinematic, such a cinematic quality you know for me now now i know a lot more about crabs when it came to your character development because these characters felt so real so so real you know i i want to be her best friend kind of thing i just absolutely adored her and there are so many different ways to approach characterization you know some people are like "Eh, there's the whole character question questionnaire interview your characters etc that's never worked for me it's never made a character feel alive for me so did you have somebody in mind who you modeled her on is there like a celebrity that you've thought about a friend in your life a composite of different people how do you bring a character so thoroughly to life and is this something that you are able to do from a first draft or is this an evolution for you what a great question. Character for me is a, is a process of painstaking layering. And so to that extent, I do not uh, base characters on anyone, um, living or dead. Partly because I just, you know, it, it's quite an offensive way of doing it, I think. <laughs> You're bound to recognise yourself. Um, but I do, you know, they, there's, there's a patchwork of lovely little things that I, you know, mannerisms and, you know, quirks that I do steal from people in my life who I know well and who I don't know well. Um, you know, I, I watch people and their insecurities in the way, you know, the stories that they're trying to tell me about who they are. And, you know, I see that stuff. And and it does it does all go in, but yeah, I've never based a character on a person. I always start with plot, always. And I'm fascinated by writers who do start with character because I think I don't know, I just think that's a really tough job. I start with the plot. My only my main concern always is to write a cracking story. And so for quite a while, you know, my characters are, they're beige. They're quite beige. Um, and that's and that's fine. And, you know, occasionally with this book, you know, I panicked. There was a time when Leo and Emma basically, who, so they both narrate, they take turns narrating. There was a time when they basically sounded the same. <laughs> um, that made me slightly anxious. But, you know, it really has been my experience for a long time now that if I if I write the if I give myself enough time to write this book, you know, none of this nonsense that you know publishers want about writing a book in a, in a year. No way. No good no good characterization comes out of a year a year's writing. If I really allow them to breathe and give them time and layer and layer and layer and layer and just slowly layer in all of the research that I've done as well and the ideas that that's that that's come up with, then eventually the characters are just writing themselves. It's actually it's not much of an effort beyond that point. And I love that you've used the word layering because because we've used that many times on the podcast and I've said you know when you've got your first draft done and you come back and you're doing editing and rewrites focus on different things for every single edit and rewrite because you know in one focus on this particular character on the other focus on that character on the one check your pronouns and make sure that you're creating the impression that you wanted to etc but you know in terms of the specificity there was a scene that happened in the office and he's having this very emotional conversation. And the next thing he looks and there is a post-it on someone's desk that is reminding them, I think, to go to gym or Pilates or something. And it's got nothing to do with the scene, but it just 
immediately put that image in my mind and it made that office come to life for me. And that's the kind of specificity that we're always talking about. Because if you're just talking about a generic office, but, you know, these are things that we do as human beings. We could be having a deeply emotional discussion and suddenly look out the window and see a pigeon humping another pigeon. And you're like, oh, that's kind of weird. And you can't get back to your conversation. But that like stays with you because it's so singular to that moment. So when you sit down to write your um, scenes, and I know that you work on, on documentaries. So I assume that you're also a very visual person. Do you picture the scene up front? Or is it that one day you were in an office and you saw someone's post-it that said, remind to go to gym, and you were like, oh, that'll be interesting to work into the scene. Or as you're sitting writing it, you close your eyes and you look around this imaginary office and you see the post-it note. How does that work for you? I mean, a lot of it is, you know, looping back to what I was saying earlier about the immersive research. I spent a lot of time in the uh, on the news floor at the, at the Daily Telegraph in London. And I don't think I did actually see a note on somebody's desk about, you know, be at the personal trainer at 6pm, don't be late. Um, I think that just was plucked out of my imagination. But, you know... <sighs> I, every everywhere I go with my characters in the book, I try to put myself there and to do exactly as you said to look around. You know, the the room that I'm in at the moment, I keep looking at the at the telephone. There's a telephone under a sort of side table under a TV, and and I keep sort of looking at it and thinking about how it's um, the same telephone that we used to have in my house a few years ago. And you know, I'm not consciously thinking that, but that stuff goes in. Um, as it does with anyone, you know, as you say, you can be having the most emotionally devastating conversation of your life, but you'll be fixated on, yeah, the pigeons humping. Or... So yeah, it's a combination of just writing down everything that I can see, hear and smell in my notebook when I'm in a place. And um, just that, that, that writer's way of viewing the world, that, that constant filtering for detail um, and trying to make that conscious rather, because, you know, we take in billions and billions of things every hour, don't we? Um, so I guess, you know, I, I try and sort of bring a more mindful consciousness into the way that I move around the world, because I know that I will need all of it <laughs> at some point. Last question before our time runs out. So you you say you have a writing partner and you bounce ideas off of them, etc. And I'm sure you have your agent read it and you have your editor read it. But this kind of book, you can only surprise people once. You know, uh, they might reread multiple drafts, but there is only that oof, sucker punch moment once. So do you then have different people looking at it at different times to make sure that it landed when you wanted it to so you can move things around? Or, or how do you navigate that? Yeah, good question. Oh, my God, the number of poor souls who I dragged into this manuscript. <laughs> it was awful for that precise reason, because once they knew, they knew. And although, you know, there were many things they could help me with beyond that point, really, you know, I couldn't ask them any questions about their journey as a reader because they'd lost that on the first draft. Um, and in fact, my British editor said to me at one point, I think just don't send this draft to me because I, I've just got to have a few weeks off because I, I cannot, you know, I cannot have a reader experience if I'm just going to read it again in two weeks. And, and, you know, and I really respected that because she was right. So yes, uh, the answer is I dragged endless writer friends in. And sometimes non-writers, just the kind of, you know, just normal friends, the kind of person who I would hope would might might see my book on a shelf and think, oh, that looks interesting and buy it. And actually, you know, I really um, encourage any writer listening to, to not just try and put their book past, you know, in front of other writers, but to put them in front of just normal readers, normal people, anyone who you think your book could be aimed at, you know, once it's published. 
give them a copy. They they will surprise you with their feedback. I've got a friend, Emma, who I, I it's now become standard practice. <laughs> I give her a copy of my novel. She's always got really harsh feedback and she's always right. It's really annoying. I sort of think she needs to go into editorial, but she has no interest in that. Yeah, and the harsh feedback is always the best feedback. It's always the feedback that we that we really needed. Rosie, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. For our listeners, Rosie Walsh's The Love of My Life, we will link to it on bookshop.org. Remember, if you purchase it through there, you are supporting not just the podcast and an indie bookstore, you're also supporting the author. And one day that is where you, you hope to be. So it's authors supporting authors. So thank you, Rosie. And I am going to dive into Ghosted after this. And then and then I'm hope, hoping we can have you back to chat about that as well. I would absolutely love that. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. 
Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hi everyone, I'm going to be answering your questions by myself today, not because Carly and Cece have abandoned me, but because I have got such shit for brains that I spent a half an hour with them, asking them these questions, getting their brilliant insights, only to realize afterwards that I had not pressed record. So that's entirely my fault. And if you're having a bad week, then just know I'm having a bad week with you. But luckily, I remember all of their brilliant answers. And so I will be able to paraphrase them for you. Hi, Bianca, Cece and Carly. My name's Mary. I'm a huge fan of the show and so grateful for all that you do for writers like me and the writing community. I have a quick question about comps. I'm currently writing um, what I think should be a dual timeline novel. However, I'm having a hard time finding comps that are really working. So I'm wondering if you have not necessarily suggestions for me, but uh, a technique or a method or a place or a resource that you could point us to for finding good comps. Right. So about the comps, Mary, we get this a lot. We have so many people who are struggling with comps, which is exactly why we've decided to launch a brand new segment whereby you as our listeners can record a message for us in this Q&A format and just say this is about a comp. Give us a bit of information about the novel you're working on, a bit of a breakdown, what the story is about, the themes, etc., the genre, etc., and then we will get a rotation of amazing booksellers on the show to see if they can help come up with comps for you. Nobody knows books as well as booksellers do. And we love our independent bookstores on the show and we like to support them as much as possible. And so we're going to pick the brains of those booksellers and hopefully you can go out and support their stores in return to say thank you. So call in to us again, Mary, give us an overview of your book and we will put it to the bookseller to see what they can come up with. Hi, Bianca. Love the podcast. I'm getting close to querying and started looking at submissions, and I'm concerned about my bio. I don't have a lot of or any writing credentials other than my novel that I've just written, um, and I'm not sure how important that is to agents when they're looking at a potential author. How should I write my bio if I don't have a lot of writing credentials or any writing credentials other than the book that I've just worked on? There's absolutely nothing wrong with being a debut author who doesn't have a lot of credentials. We've all had to start somewhere and for every single debut author, they've had to say at some point that, you know, their biggest achievement has been writing this novel that they are submitting. And it is a damn big achievement. So we absolutely don't want to underplay that. Uh, you don't want to just pad out your bio. And it's completely fine to say, 
you know, I, I haven't got a lot of experience. I haven't published anywhere. This book is the first book that I've written. Obviously, if you are able to submit to journals or to short story competitions, and if you are able to get credentials, that's great. But if you don't, it's not the end of the world. The most important thing to the agents is that you've written a really good book. So what they pay most attention to in your query letter is that plot paragraph. If they love the plot paragraph, they're going to reach out and they're going to ask for the full manuscript. They don't wait to see your author bio to decide whether or not they're going to represent you. I'd love to hear about proper etiquette when you receive a full manuscript request or even an offer from an agent. Um, so should you tell the agents you've queried um, about the full manuscript request or only the ones who currently are reading your full manuscript? Um, so if you could just tell us a little bit more about that, that would be great. Right. So in terms of when you receive an offer from an agent, you can definitely reach out to everybody, all the agents who have your full manuscript, who have requested the full manuscript, and you can let them know that you do have an offer of representation from an agent. What Carly said in her wonderful answer, which you will never hear thanks to me being a dumbass, is that it all depends on how you word that in your mail to the agents. If you just let them know, I have an offer of representation and you have two days to get back to me, then that makes it kind of clear that you're not really open to letting that agent read the manuscript or give you any kind of critique on it. However, if you do let them know that you received an offer from an agent and you say, before I sign with them, I would be interested to hear what you think about the manuscript, what feedback you have for me, and if you would be willing to offer representation. And then that lets the agent know that you are open to working with them and you are open to receiving critique from them. And of course, you also need to give them some time to read your manuscript. When it comes to getting a full manuscript request, that's not something you necessarily need to let agents know about. Carly did say that if she gets an email from a author who said that someone else has requested the full manuscript. She takes note of it, but it doesn't speed up her process in any way because she's constantly working on the assumption that you have submitted to multiple agents and that multiple agents are actually interested. How do you know when you're done with a piece? Like how many people should ideally read it and give feedback? Um, how do you know when it's been read by enough people and that it's ready to submit? What's the ideal number, especially if you cannot afford an editor or someone professional to look at it? This is one where Cece gave a wonderful analogy. And again, you're not going to hear that. So let me paraphrase it for you. She said, if you were contacted by one of the big five publishers today and they said to you, we are going to publish this manuscript that you've submitted to us. But here's the catch. We're going to publish it, but if it isn't well received by readers and if it isn't well received by reviewers because there are issues with the manuscript, then you will never get to publish again. And the question you then need to ask yourself is, are you then prepared to say, good, I feel comfortable, I feel as confident as I possibly can, so I'm going to say, yes, go ahead and publish the manuscript, or are you then going to say, wait, wait, hold up, give me a few more days, let me see what I can do in terms of polishing it up. So that was Cece's advice to you. My advice is, once you've got all your beta readers, once you've had your writing group people looking at it, you will see 
the kind of feedback that you're getting over time. So for example, when I send out rough drafts to my writing group, every single paragraph is pretty much marked up. It looks like the poor page is bleeding with all of the red as they ask questions and as they change things or as they suggest changes, etc., etc. But by the time I've gotten to my 20th draft that I've sent to them, they will pretty much give a comment or make a change only every 10 pages or so. So you'll be able to see from the reduction in the kind of critique that you're getting that you are getting closer to the manuscript being as polished as you, as it can be. And even then, once your writing group who've seen the document multiple, multiple times, once they no longer have any helpful critique to give you, that's a good time for you to reach out to someone who's never read it before and ask them for their critique because they're coming at it you know, completely without having any kind of context for it and then see the kind of feedback you get there. You will get a good sense in terms of the kind of feedback you're getting. You'll start to see that the suggestions, etc., dwindle um, and that's when you have a good idea that you are closer to the point at which you can submit. Hey, Bianca. Uh, you mentioned a few times uh, the importance of writing in your first language and then getting the translation once you are a published author and, to be honest, successful enough to be translated. Uh, you mentioned it mainly on the episode with the French writer and I am horribly sorry for not remembering, not for not remembering the name now. Uh, I really love your podcast. But there was no mention of many of us writers who, for various reasons, decided to write in English, even though it is not our first language. In some countries, the publishing industry works very differently, and to write for our local audience would make no sense, trust me. There would simply be no way for the book to get published. Um, and here, think of very small countries. Could you talk about this topic more, or invite an author who made it? I'm sure it would give many of us much needed support and, to be honest, some sort of validation that what we are trying is not complete nonsense. Thank you very much. Your podcast is awesome. I must be honest, I don't recall saying that you shouldn't be writing um, in English and that you should be writing in your native language. I'm very much aware that getting published in your native language is extremely difficult. So, for example, in South Africa, if you were to write a book in, you know, Koza or Sutu or Zulu or Afrikaans, there's a much smaller market for that and therefore much harder to to get that book published than if you wrote the book in English. I think I must have, what I think I recall saying is that writing a book in a language that's not your native language, that's extremely difficult. And I really take my hat off to writers who are able to do that. So if you can find that episode and, and tell me exactly what I said, um, perhaps that's something I can clarify for you. But certainly I'm, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be writing in English. That is, you know, the language of, of publishing. Um, I think I've just mentioned that, that it's tough, that it's, that it's really difficult to write in a language you don't think in. Um, and that's something that I greatly, greatly admire. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? 
Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is the author of We Need New Names, which was a finalist for the Booker Prize and won the Penn Hemingway Award, the Art Sandenbaum Award for First Fiction, the Hurston Rice Legacy Award for Fiction, and Etta Salad Prize for Literature. She grew up in Zimbabwe and now lives in the United States. It's my pleasure to welcome Novalet Bulawayo. Novalet, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so wonderful to actually be chatting to a Zimbabwean author. I'm South African, tons of Zimbabwean friends, there's many of them here in uh, Toronto. And we don't get to chat to many, many Zimbabwean authors. And it's wonderful to see how many of them now are writing and are having huge, huge success. So for our listeners, the New York Times called the glory, which is the book we're discussing today, a brilliant 400 page post-colonial fable charting the downfall of one tyrant whose counterpart here is an elderly horse and the rise of a new one. Now, Novalet, you've said in interviews that on November 14th, 2017, you woke up to the news that Robert Mugabe, Zimbabwe's ruler for nearly four decades, had been deposed in a coup. Now, back in California, you began making plans to return to Zimbabwe and see for yourself what was happening on the ground. Could you tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. November 14, 2017 was a day I never thought I would see in my lifetime. That is to say, see the then president of Zimbabwe being forced out of office. I had reconciled myself to the idea that he was probably going to die in office. And so the moment just demanded for me to go and see for myself on the ground. And of course, as a storyteller, I'm always looking for stories. That kind of story was a gift. I did not go researching for it. It just fell on my lap. I flew to Zim a couple of weeks later to the euphoria, the excitement, the sense of hope for a people who had tried to remove Mugabe through the election process and failed. It was a complicated moment because the guy who was going to take over had been a part and parcel of his regime. He had been his deputy. But still many people felt like, you know, we had seen the West as Zimbabweans. It couldn't get any any worse. And generally hoped that we had turned a corner. So that was what the moment was. Yeah, and we as South Africans were watching Morgan Svangurai for a long time, kind of cheering him on and, and really hoping to see him succeeding there. I can see 100% what you're saying. Now, many people will consider Glory to be a modern day African sort of equivalent of animal farm because you use the allegory of seeing Zimbabwe, but in this instance, it becomes a fictionalized country called Jidada through the lens of farm animals. But in Zimbabwean folklore, 
there's much use of animals as well. So I think it's more hearkening back to that than it is necessarily a modern day animal farm. Could you speak to that? No, absolutely. I think the problem with having one part of the world kind of define divine things is that they forget that other parts of the world, parts that are not necessarily considered sender, have their own ways of being. In my case, oral literature really was front and center even before I learned how to read books. My grandmother, my father were telling me stories pretty much every night. And yes, Glory has a connection to Animal Farm, but I think it really gets its power, its language, its creative force from the stories of animals and not necessarily farm animals that I grew up around. So it was a great way to go back to what for me was a formative time as a storyteller. Of course, I didn't know as a kid that I was going to grow up and write about these animals. But yeah, it, it really felt nice to be going back years later to my grandfather's voice, to my grandmother's voice, and sort of excavate that very rich heritage of folklore, which, as you rightly say, is an African, very, very old African way of telling stories. Yeah, like idioms and all kinds of allegories that are tied to animals. Yeah, we recently chatted with Marlon James on the podcast, and he was talking about the oral tradition and how that has affected African stories and how Western stories have centered everything. But these stories are so much older than our Western stories, and the oral tradition dates back so long. And there's also a rhythm and a cadence to the oral tradition of storytelling as well that came through so much in the book, in the reading of this. Were you tempted to read your own audiobook? Did you read your own audiobook? I was tempted to read my own audiobook. I wanted to, but then at the end of the novel, I realized that the book was crazy. It needed a professional. It needed a trained professional. And I was going to do a miserable job. So I had a Zimbabwean actress who did a fantastic job, Chibo Chung. But also there's a freedom to using animals instead of people. And while I was reading this, there was so much that resonated with me, making me think, for example, there's a few examples I was thinking of. There were times that when Mugabe would fall asleep at big events, he would be snoring loudly. And I remember there was newspaper headlines that said, the 93-year-old president of Zimbabwe is having eye problems. So said his spokesman, George Chiramba, who tells local media that he feels very, very pained when he hears reports that Robert Mugabe, the world's oldest head of state, is falling asleep during conferences. And he goes on to say, at 93, there's something that happens to the eyes. The president cannot suffer bright lights. It was compared to Nelson Mandela having problems with white lights. But I mean, that dated back to Nelson Mandela being on Robben Island, etc. And then as well, it's not just in Zimbabwe that this was happening. So the first hour-long episode of Moscow Kremlin Putin on the Russia One channel included an interview with the leader's press spokesman who described his boss as a very humane human. And you think about Trump calling himself a stable genius. Let's talk a bit about these inspirations for writing satire. Absolutely. And just hearing you read the statement from the spokesman is <laughs> it's just incredible. And really thinking back to my choice of use, starting to use the animal kingdom, it was such statements even from our stable genius here 
that made me realize that I was competing with a reality that was wilder and crazier than fiction. So I had to find a way to outcompete that reality. And I feel like there's nothing like satire, like irony to do the job. And of course, with the animal kingdom, I felt like there were no holes, but I could take the story anyway. And I hope that I really pushed the envelope. I hope that I went off kilter just in inhabiting that space of representing the, the upset, for lack of a better word, and the unreal. Reading it made me think of like the theater of the absurd. I think this would make an excellent stage production because it is just so ridiculous. But as ridiculous as it is, we're seeing this happening. We've been seeing this playing out. And so I love that you leaned into that because often satire is kind of downplayed. But like you say, when truth is stranger than fiction, you've really got to <laughs> got to up the stakes of that fiction. So just for our listeners, in glory, the aged, entrenched father of the nation is a horse. His wife is a donkey in Gucci heels. The country's most popular evangelist is a pig. The military police are ferocious attack dogs. The U.S. president appears as a tweeting baboon. And then Destiny is a goat who's returned to the township of Lozikei after a 10-year exile. And what I loved about this is that there are no men or women in glory. There is no personhood at all. There's only, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, it's obviously from the contraction of animals. So mills and females. Is that for the yes. males and the females, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And then things are kept private or personal matters. Quadrupedal animals switch freely between moving on four legs and two. And when they opt for the latter, it is termed hinding. Now, I'm really interested to know, you created your own lexicon for this novel, No Violet. How was the evolution of that? Was it that before you started writing, you sat down and realized you would have to create this whole lexicon? Or is it that in the process of writing, you realized that you would have to come up with this whole way of writing? It was in the process of writing, but a process that was made simpler by the fact that I already had a resource to simply tap into. And that was my grandmother. I, I felt like she had really done the work of world building, providing that lexicon. And part of what I love about her stories and by extension, indigenous cultures is the relationship between the animal and the human. There were stories, for instance, where beautiful girls fell in love with a lion who could shape-shift without necessarily knowing that he was a lion. And what those kinds of stories did was to erase the boundary between animal and human. What was important that was that we were dealing with a living being. And for that reason, I think my animals don't always sound like animals. They also don't sound like people. But it's, yeah, I feel like the reader doesn't have to work hard thinking, okay, am, am, am I dealing with an animal or a human being? It was necessary for me to celebrate life in its different forms and sort of break down what I think is an artificial border that we as humans have put around us because, of course, we think we are the evolved species. So it was my way of centering the animal, giving them that kind of prominence in the story. Yeah. And, you know, I think back to when I was a child, I think some of the most important lessons that I learned about human nature and about human beings were in these sort of allegories using animals. I remember the one with the scorpion on the frog crossing the water. And for our listeners who haven't read it, the scorpion asks the frog to swim him across a dam or a river. And the frog goes, no, you're going to sting me. 
if I do that? And the scorpion goes, no, no, if I sting you, we'll both drown. Of course I won't do that. And they get halfway across the water. And of course, what does the scorpion Mm do? It stings the toad or the frog and they both die. And before they die, the toad says, why did you do that? And the scorpion goes, because it's in my nature. And so much to learn from these kinds of simplification of human nature, really. How did you decide on each of the animals? I felt like some of them were obvious choices, but the horse for the father of the nation, I thought that was really interesting. Some were obvious choices, yes, but some were difficult in the sense that I had to make the choice based on the context and the story that I was trying to tell. So for the horse, for for the donkeys, I simply thought of the animals in terms of their physical power. The horses tend to be the larger end of the farm animals. So the, you know, I was thinking of physical strength and especially considering the role that our leaders seem to inhabit today. It's it's one of a force of a strength that doesn't necessarily have to do with leadership qualities. In the case of the father of the nation, it was a violent strength and hence also his dogs, the defenders, that choice as well. So I was making those kind of loose but calculated choices based on the story that I was trying to tell. And then the citizens tend to be the lesser animals that don't necessarily stand out. Got the destiny, for instance, is a god. Among farm animals, we don't think of the god as being a prominent animal. But I thought it was important for the story to have her being a god, especially given the role she would end up playing in the later part of the novel. Yeah, and there's a hardiness to a goat. I'm a Capricorn and the goat is my symbol. Uh, So I'm a strong proponent of goats, but certainly there's a tenacity to a goat. They may be overlooked, but certainly there's a tenacity there. You've also said in an interview, and I'm going to quote you back to yourself here. You said, when you think about narratives of trauma, and especially the case of the Gugaraundi, people don't forget their dead. Their names live on. Writing, which is a form of storytelling, is really very central in not only bringing to life the unspeakable and helping people heal their trauma, but also holding governments accountable. Because once our stories are public, we have to deal with the conversations that are hopefully going to come about. Can you chat a bit more about that as well in terms of dealing with trauma and this kind of thing through writing? Just the project of putting the Gugura only on the page for me is significant because it is... Writing is a form of speaking, and I acknowledge while I'm putting it on the page that I am doing so when other people have not spoken their stories. And the way I handle the narrative in glory was deliberate in the sense that I wanted to give a sense of redress, a sense of acknowledgement, a sense of sort of honoring the dead by having their names put up in that memorial in a township. Those are things that have never happened on the ground. And of course, as a storyteller, as a creative, my imagination for me is as real as reality. So in the country of my imagination, I wanted to give the victims of that terrible time a kind of redress, knowing and hoping that there is a time when art and life interact. And it is my hope that glory adds to the conversations that are happening on the ground. It is my hope that it means something 
that in this fictional space, there has been that kind of intervention that brings these stories. Because when Destiny, try not to spoil, to give away too much. When Destiny's mother puts up the memorial, people from all over really come and speak their truths just through the act of writing names. So I'm, I'm really curious to see how that part is read in a space where we are dealing with a government that doesn't want to take responsibility. When we are dealing with a government that really has not tried to give a sense of redress, a, a sense of healing, but still con- expects people to, to forget or, or move on. Yeah, I know that in South Africa, what was huge there was putting up the Hector Peterson Museum in Soweto in Vilakazi Street to honor those who were killed in the Soweto uprising and certainly the Apartheid Museum as well. Just really small steps, not nearly big enough, but so incredibly necessary. Does that come with a huge sense of responsibility, Navala, to be almost a spokesperson for so many people who don't get to speak out publicly about these things? Because I know that sometimes this huge sense of responsibility for the writer can almost be paralyzing. And I know that women in general feel like they almost don't give themselves permission to be telling these stories. So what's your advice to readers who are feeling like they're almost spokespeople or that they need permission to be telling these stories? How did you handle that? I've thought a lot about my role as an artist. And of course, I'd like to be one of those artists who doesn't feel the obligation to be anybody's spokesperson. But the reality is that I am very much invested in the collective. I am very much invested in a sense of justice. And I need and I demand and I hope I always exist in this mode of my art to look beyond my personal concerns and interests to be part of something larger, to be engaged with the times. And that specific issue for me is really front and center. And if I was reluctant, especially as a younger artist, I think the reception of my first novel actually made me understand just how much power there was in the work that we do, you know. And for me, that was encouraging because stories matter. You know, the stories that we tell matter, how we tell them matter. And just the realization that our readers are real people who are reading for so many, many, many reasons. But they definitely are readers for whom the work that we do resonates and helps them. So it's actually an honor to be part of that conversation, to facilitate that conversation. Yeah, and it's so wonderful to see the Zimbabwean stories being published in the U.S. because the frustration for many South African writers is that their stories get published in South Africa by small indie presses and they aren't being published on a larger stage. And certainly there have been huge barriers to entry in terms of that. It's unfair that somebody like you has to be kind of breaking through those ceilings for these other writers, but certainly as is the way of African women everywhere, you are not only achieving for yourself, you are paving the way for many other women who come behind you. And representation is incredibly important, especially in publishing. Absolutely, absolutely. And we we tend to forget that when we sit with our pages, when our books comes out. But the reality is that it matters that writers like me exist in the spaces that were breaking ceilings, as you say. And I am pleased that there's a whole generation coming behind us 
whose journeys are going to be easier for it. And by extension, who will in turn open doors. It's unfortunate that the playing field is not necessarily level, but still the work that writers are doing across so many mediums is quite exciting and, and encouraging. So I have two more questions before we go. One, could you recommend some Zimbabwean authors for our listeners who would like to widen the reading experience? There is uh, Nobuyo Chuma. There is uh, Petina Gapa. There is Panache Chikumazi, Sipiwe Gloria Njovu, Christopher Mlalazi. I will stop there. <laughs> what I will do is I'll make sure that I list all of these authors on okay. our podcast so that people can easily find that. Remember, for our listeners, we put all of these titles on our bookshop.org page and you can source them all there as you're trying to access their work. Before we let you go, Novila, do you have advice for emerging writers? Any kernels of wisdom for people as they're making their way on this writing journey that can sometimes be so incredibly disheartening, littered with so many rejections, etc. We try and give our listeners something to keep them going and to keep them empowered and encouraged. So is there any words of wisdom you can leave for them? Yeah, the first one is to put in the work to commit to your craft. We come wired differently as writers. Some people are strong on the talent part. Some people are strong on the craft part. Some people are strong on the reading part. So you need to find a way to reconcile all those things, but to work super hard on getting your writing to the level that it needs to be. Because I find that people are always looking for good stories, strong stories, compelling writing. And when you do put in the work, I think you'll have an easier time. It's an interesting moment to exist because there are so many avenues for emerging writers to send their work. But also there is a sense of produce, 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 publish now because so-and-so has a thing out. So slow down, take your time, understand yourself and work on your own pace. Build a community. Not everyone needs to be in an MFA program. Not everyone needs to go to school, but just find your trusted readers who will help you with critiques, who will help build your work and stick to those. And of course, read widely. Amazing, amazing <laughs> advice. Thank you so, so much. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information, and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's bookseller is a former lawyer turned stay-at-home mom who was searching for her next career path when she learned that an independent bookstore was about to open in her Capitol Hill neighborhood. She knew immediately that this was what she was meant to do. She was recommending books with frequency and great passion long before she realized she could do it professionally. And she's been at East City Bookshop as a bookseller and as its book buyer since it opened in 2016. 
She's been recognized with the James Patterson Holiday Bonus for Booksellers Twice in 2017 and 2021. And in 2019, she won a Bookselling Without Borders Fellowship to attend the Turin International Book Fair in Italy. A native South Carolinian, she and her husband have lived in D.C. for almost 17 years. They live blocks from the bookstore with their two children, two dogs, and of course, too many books. It's my pleasure to welcome Emily Summer. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. What a joy to get to chat to to Emily. So for our listeners, Emily and I met when I went on a pre-launch book tour for Hum If You Don't Know The Words. And she was just one of my absolute favorite booksellers. And I love East City Bookshop in DC. Absolutely adore it. So to have Emily on for our inaugural comps episode is a huge treat. So Emily, will you kick us off with, with your comps? Let's begin with the first one. Hi, good morning, and thank you so much for doing this. This is such a wonderful opportunity. I'm struggling to find good comps for my upper YA contemporary fantasy novel, which tells the story of a high school senior in modern Singapore who wants nothing more than to get into her dream college until she falls in love with a fugitive assassin who's fled here from another world. And when his enemies follow him, she has to choose between either helping him kill his enemies or giving him up at the cost of her heart. It is right now at about 92,000 words, uh, written in third person limited, and alternates mostly and alternates from the protagonist and the assassin's points of view. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day, and I look forward to hearing your response. So my suggestion for this, and I have to confess that I cheated a little bit and asked one of my colleagues, Lainey Rose Riser, who is famous on Book Talk at Lainey Rose for her help with these. And Lainey and I thought that Crier's War, which is a sci-fi fantasy featuring automatons, sounded like it could be a good comp. There is a princess spy romance that sounds very similar to the protagonist assassin romance um, that this author mentioned. So that we think Crier's War by Nina Varela might be a good comp. And we also immediately thought of Six of Crows, which is high fantasy for that age by Lee Bardugo um, and also features assassins. So I would look at Crier's War and Six of Crows. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Emily. Okay. this. Hi. So my novel is about a doctor who realizes that their hospital is being overrun by victims of gangsters and gangsters themselves, and she's not able to perform her duties efficiently. She makes the heart-wrenching decision to start killing some of her patients or simply stepping aside to allow them to die instead of intervening. I've got a current comp in the form of Jeff Lindsay's Dexter and uh, the Red Hunter by Lisa Unger, and also They Never Learn by Lane Fargo. But I think uh, The Red Hunter is reaching, and They Never Learn is not a title that I particularly enjoyed. In fact, I didn't finish it. Um, so, yeah, thank you. So for this this one, I thought the Dexter comp that was mentioned immediately had me thinking of very appealing but perhaps unreliable narrators. And so the first thing I thought of was You by Caroline Kepnes, which, of course, the book and the television show, um, very appealing and has had great success. I also thought of Darling Rose Gold by Stephanie Robel. That is the story of a mother and a daughter and Munchausen's by proxy. And the daughter sort of has to decide whether or not to 
to take revenge on the mother who wronged her. And I also thought of The Chain by Adrian McGinty. So it's hard to tell from this description, um, sort of the, the perspective of the main character, the doctor in the hospital. But if that is really a sympathetic character who is just driven to do questionable things, The Chain, I think, is a great comp. That is when parents are told that their children have been kidnapped and the only way to get their children released is to kidnap another child. So they're forced into a really horrible situation. So I think that, that those might be good comps for this one. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. Next one. Hi, my name is Cassandra. I really adore the work you all do on the podcast, and I would love some comps from a wonderful indie bookseller. My debut is an upmarket adult novel that is voicey, fast-paced, and has quite a lot of dark humor. It's told in the first person from the perspective of Effie, a first-generation Cypriot woman in Melbourne. She's deeply depressed and accidentally starts a cult when she posts anonymously about her mental health. Effie wants desperately to be seen. She feels too tired to kill herself and too uninspired to get out of bed. Her therapist suggests she keep a diary, but this is the 21st century, and people hook the Ethernet cable up to their vein and bleed out online. In an attempt to be seen, she takes to the internet and gains some followers and soon after an alias and some PR reps. Falling further down the PR rabbit hole, her fans don't seem to stop growing. Ignoring the warnings from her best friend, it takes a tragic death of two loyal followers for her to realize that through a clever mix of marketing and misery, she's accidentally become a god. Now she just needs to get out of it. All right. For this third one, I had a lot of fun trying to think of dark, darkly funny, um, culty books. And I thought of a lot. So for the protagonist who is depressed and is having a hard time, I immediately thought of Sad Janet by Lucy Bridge, which came out in 2020, right during the pandemic, and I think did not get as much attention as it should, although I think readers and booksellers and editors will still be familiar with it. An extremely darkly funny tone um, that would really resonate. I also thought of Followers by Megan Angelo. So that is a story about sort of how social media can go wrong, how fame can go wrong, and where all those things might lead us. And then for cults, the the cult part, I automatically thought about one of my favorite books of the last year um, by friend of East City Bookshop, Laura Hankin, called A Special Place for Women, which imagines a women's co-working spot. Very fancy, very wonderful and upscale. Um, And of course, there's a darker side to it. And then Sloan Crosley, who is best known until now for essays, has a novel coming out very soon, and it's called Cult Classic, When a Woman Walks the Streets of New York starts running into ex-boyfriend after ex-boyfriend after ex-boyfriend and realizes that something strange is afoot. And I think that that one could be a good one for this as well. Oh, I love that. And, you know, here's the thing for our listeners. The amazing thing about booksellers is that they know what's coming out long before it comes out because they get the advanced reader copies far in advance. So perhaps by the time you're going on, on, um, you know, querying with an agent. The book will be out. So just double, double check that. Um, so that you don't use a comp that hasn't come out yet. But, you know, as, uh, as you're gearing up to query, that's something to look out for. Wonderful. Emily, next one. Hi guys. My name is Justin Woods and I'm looking for comps for my current manuscript. It's about Sarah Kenton. She is frontiersman Simon Kenton's daughter. She starts out from Urbana, Ohio, heading towards St. Louis when she is attacked. 
her rescuer is actually Tecumseh. He's a Shawnee Indian. And while she is healing in his village, they kind of fall for each other. And that's when the War of 1812 breaks out. So now she is an American in a British ally camp. William Henry Harrison thinks that she's a spy and she doesn't really want to leave Tecumseh. But somehow she has to survive on her own and make it through. So that's my story is basically how she survives the War of 1812 on the wrong side as an American in love with the enemy. Do you have any comps for this historical fiction? Thank you, guys. Bye. Okay, for the next one, I loved um, hearing about this historical fiction and this romance, and it strikes me as a very um, warm-hearted, I hopefully, high-stakes historical romance. Um, and I thought immediately of Paulette Giles' News of the World, which is not a romance, but it is a very compelling, beautifully written historical fiction that really drops you into the place and time. So I would highly recommend News of the World. Um, as a comp. I also thought of a book by Amanda Coplin called The Orchardist, which is another sort of high stakes, action packed, plot driven historical fiction about two young girls in the Pacific Northwest trying to make it. But both News of the World and The Orchardist are survival stories um, with heroines that you really, really believe in and care about. And depending on the tone, it's, you know, it's hard to tell the tone of the books and the voice of the books in the um, just a couple of sentences that we've gotten. But if this one happens to have a darker edge or anybody out there listening has a historical fiction with a darker edge, I would recommend um, taking a look at Serena by Ron Rash, which is exceptionally vivid historical fiction, but very dark um, in, in the best way. I loved it. Emily, I consider myself a well-read person, and I have read so few of these titles. You are making me feel like like I really have have not read very much, which I absolutely love. This is why we have booksellers on to do this segment. Okay, next one. Hi, my name is Hannah. I'm a devoted fan. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm excited to hear what comps your indie bookseller can come up with. My book I would describe as upmarket women's fiction. It's about two sisters who are estranged and reunited at their mother's funeral and are at a point in their life where they really need each other again, and they struggle to rebuild their friendship, only to have it all fall apart when the older sister's um, early betrayal is revealed to the younger sister, and they have to struggle to make it through that or lose each other forever. I would say that it is sort of like Big Little Lies by Leanne Moriarty meets... Jennifer Weiner's In Her Shoes, but those are both extremely old comps, and I would love to hear um, some more modern ones. Thank you so much. Okay, so the next one, um, the two estranged sisters reuniting high emotional drama. I loved thinking about this one, and it sounded like a lot of books um, that I that I happen to read. And the comp in the in the clip was Big Little Lies meets In Her Shoes. So what I thought of, if it does have a Big Little Lies vibe, if it's got that sort of who did it, something terrible has happened, I would look at Wahala by Nikki May, which just came out and is a British-Nigerian. Uh, it's about four British-Nigerian friends who are just traveling along and everything's fine until an interloper comes along and then things go awry. So it doesn't have the the sibling angle, but it definitely has the close friends, there is an estrangement, um, what what has happened. So if it's got the Big Little Lies vibes, I would look there. 
And then for In Her Shoes, which is an older title that I absolutely love, I would look at The People We Keep by Alison Larkin, which came out last year and is just the most wonderful, rich, emotional drama. And it is sort of about found family, but it has those high emotional stakes and really tugs at the heartstrings and is about how when you do find these important people, um, even if it takes a lot of work, how we how important it is to try to hang on. Oh, and one more for that one. There's another one that either just came out or is about to come out, and it's by an author named Katie Regan called How to Find Your Way Home. And that is about a brother and sister who have been estranged, and the brother actually um, was homeless for a while, and it's sort of how they find their way back to each other and rebuild their relationship and his life. I have not read that one yet, but it is on my list. Wonderful. What about um, Olympus, Texas? would be a a good comp for this as well. What are you thinking there? I think it could be. I have not read it. That one is also on my list. See, we can't read them all. It seems like I'm well-read and there are still so many that I can't get to. And that one is on my list. Um, But yes, I think sort of emotional family drama, that one has been beloved. So that could be good as well. Wonderful. Okay, next one. Hello. I'm looking for comps for an urban fantasy about a uh, young woman who goes to a community college to study for an associate degree in magic. Uh, She has expected her entire life to become a master at magic, only to lose that ability uh, just at the end of her uh, basically high school education uh, to become just an ordinary novice magician. So she goes for an associate degree for that purpose at a local community college when she discovers a dead body. And that discovery leads her to a monster who has been killing people for generations. What would be a comp for that? Like Silence of the Lambs meets uh, Miss Peregrine? I don't know. I immediately thought of, well, the, the the aspect of the character who has lost their magic made me think of a forthcoming book um, that I just finished called Unlikely Animals by Annie Hartnett. So Annie Hartnett had a great book out from Ten House, I believe, a few years ago called Rabbit Cake. In Unlikely Animals, the main character is in her early 20s, and she's returned home after leaving medical school when she's realized she is not a healer anymore. She had been in the past able to heal people with her touch, and she can no longer do it. So it is not it is not high fantasy and it is not magic, but there is definitely an element of sort of magical realism and grappling with losing your gift that I think could work. And then my, again, Lainey Rose, they helped me out with this one and suggested Legend Born, which is about college-aged magical abilities. And that one is much darker than Unlikely Animals. Unlikely Animals is sort of warm and whimsical um, with very serious subplots. And then another urban fantasy that jumped out at us was Cemetery Boys, which is one of Lainey's favorites and a favorite of East City Bookshop. Yeah. So again, you know, it is dependent on tone as well. So, so for our listeners who haven't yet done their recordings for the comps, you know, um, try as much as possible to give us not just information about the plot and the genre, but uh, specifically about the tone as well. Okay. Next one, Emily. Hi, I am Emily Ray, and I'm looking for comp titles for my manuscript, which is an adult soft sci-fi. So my main character, Ashley, is a wannabe video game developer, but ever since her sister died, she hasn't been able to find her muse. 
But when she powers up some code that her sister wrote for a retro 90s virtual reality game console, she found that her sister's consciousness has been uploaded into the system. And the VR system is super realistic. So for the first time in years, Ashley's inspired to create her own game. But when an undisclosed hacker works their way into the system, making threats to Ashley to give them the advanced technology, they're willing to destroy Ashley's identity and her mind to get the console back. But Ashley doesn't want to give up the console to a hacker with that much power. And more importantly, she doesn't want to give up her sister again. So the next one, um, again, with the sisters, which is one of my favorite fiction content, um, this the, the idea of the video game developers and the video game immediately made me think of a forthcoming book that I believe and predict is going to be a big hit by Gabrielle Zevin called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. So Gabrielle has had hits in the past, um, probably most notably for the storied life of A.J. Fickery. This one is coming out and it is about video game developers, their relationship over time, and has that sort of small science element and the video game element that I think is going to be really appealing and people are already super excited about it. The idea of trying to reach our sis- a sister's consciousness or reach a um, a family member who's lost to us immediately made me think of a book that I absolutely adored last year called In the Quick by Kate Hope Day. It is set in space or, or largely in space. The main character is a child prodigy who becomes fixated on solving a problem in space travel because her uncle had worked on... Um, a space launch that was lost in space. And so she's sort of trying to not access his literal consciousness, but certainly carry his spirit alive. And it's got that same science, soft sci-fi element that was mentioned. Wonderful. Thank you. Next one. Hi there. Thank you so much for doing this. I am struggling to find comps for my novel, which is called Hands Free. And it's an upmarket dual POV look at marriage in midlife power and control and living with neurodiversity. Basically, a professional baker and mom with major control issues breaks both arms a few weeks before a career-defining wedding project. And her estranged husband with undiagnosed ADHD moves back in to care for her. Takes place in uh, New York State's Catskills. So it's got a rural aspect to it, a little fish out of water. They have moved there from Brooklyn a few years ago. And I'm kind of having a trouble figuring out exactly what to do. Thanks. Okay, so the next one, I loved that we've got one here that is about marriage and midlife um, and sort of making it together. And I thought for the marriage and midlife vibes, I thought immediately of Vladimir by Julia May Jonas, which just came out. If you've seen the cover, it's a a man with a hairy chest. Um, But the book is not about a hairy chested man. The book is really about a long marriage. Um, It is about children in midlife and sort of aging and grappling with all of those things and a very long relationship. And then the the neurodiversity aspect of this and sort of struggling with breaking both arms and trying to make it made me think of a book um, called How Lucky by Will Leach. And that is a wonderful mystery. Um, And it's sort of a rear window scenario where our main character believes that he has seen a woman get kidnapped. The, the, the story, the sort of hook is that the main character has spinal muscular atrophy. So he cannot, he cannot speak verbally and he cannot walk. 
it is a, but one, like lots of emotional development, really high emotional stakes. Um, and I think that this reminded me of both of those, which is, I can't think of anything else out there that's like that. So that's great. Okay. Next one. Hello. My current novel is a dark romantic fantasy that features a reimagining of vampires as demon-like creatures. The story centers around a diligent and reserved young woman who's forced to partner with one of these, quote, vampires, specifically one with an attitude, in order to protect her city. The world and lore are heavily inspired by RPG games like Dungeons and Dragons or Skyrim, and the novel even includes mixed media storytelling through a centuries-old journal. The themes that I heavily touch on in the novel include fate versus choice, man versus self, fear, and acceptance. Given all that, do you have any comp suggestions for me? Thank you. Okay. I struggle with vampires. So again, I enlisted the help of Lainey Rose. This one, what jumped out at me was the centuries old journals part and the idea of fate versus choice. And for the the century old journals made me think of Notes from a Burning Age by Claire North. And in that book, there are old texts that we're trying to protect to save the world. That aspect could work. And then as a the dark romantic fantasy part, Lainey suggests, so this is Ever After. And that one is inspired in part by D&D campaigns and also touches on fate versus choice. And that the author for that is Lucan's. So this is Ever After. Wonderful. Thank you. Next one. Hi, thanks for this opportunity. I would really appreciate help figuring out comps. Um, so what kicks off the plot of my magic school book is that the, the, this judoka gets hired to be the self-defense teacher, except, um, she's not a mage and she didn't know magic existed. So she ends up having to team up with the school troublemaker to keep everyone else from figuring out that she, uh, she's not supposed to be here but then murders happen and so then they have to keep her from getting framed but also keep her secret from getting out um i'm aware of skullmance the tone is not right so i would really appreciate help with comps thank you Okay, so the next one, we've got a magic school. I loved thinking about this sort of non-magic teacher teaming up with a troublemaker. And I immediately thought of Magic for Liars by Sarah Gailey. So they write wonderful, wonderfully beloved sci-fi fantasy books. And in Magic for Liars, we have a twin sister, one who is magical and one who is not. And the one who is not magical is roped into sort of the, the heart of the story. So I think that that could have the same the same vibe, especially if Skullmance is not is not the same tone. I think that Magic for Liars might be. And Lainey also mentioned um, the Atlas Six by Olivia Blake, which was self published, did such a bang up business that it has now been traditionally published and just came out. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that lately. I feel like publishers are being damn lazy, man. They're waiting to see how authors do well by themselves, and then they swoop in and and snap them up. It's happening. It is happening. Uh, hello, thank you for doing this. I'm looking for comp titles for Christmas story picture books without animals, more family oriented that are more recent books. Thank you. 
All right. This one may have been the hardest one for me. And and if I if I heard the clip correctly, we're looking for Christmas story picture books, but that are not about animals and not about family and that are recent. So of course the first two I thought of are are not recent. I thought of um the mitten um by Brett and I thought of the Polar Express. So those are which of course the Polar Express has a little bit of a family, um, a family story, but is not more about the train than it is about the family and and not about animals. Because it is the beginning of spring, I could not go back and look at all of our Christmas picture book stock. But I know there are a lot of early picture books that are focused more on winter and more. So you might look there and that are also focused on um, sort of like Little Blue Trucks Christmas. So Little Blue Trucks Christmas and the construction site Christmas books are going to be books that do not, that don't center animals, that don't center a family because instead we're talking about vehicles. There's one I know called the Little Snowplow. And then there are lots just about snowmen. I don't know if there are any about snow women, but I might look there and, and it is hard this time of year to try to find, try to find those comps. So good luck. And if I think of anything, Bianca, I'll write in and tell you and update you. Thank you. Next one. Hi, Bianca, Cece, and Carly. I saw your tweet about struggling to find comps, and as it was as if you are reading my mind. I am struggling to find comps for a collection of essays. Um, they all have common themes about racial injustice and mass incarceration in the United States. Um, if you could please give me a couple of comps, I've... I've um, found some outside of the essay collection genre. Um, but I really think one of the comps should be a collection of essays. So if you have um, any suggestions, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much. I love the podcast. Because the the essay collection is about racial injustice, I immediately thought about Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. So that is a story about the Asian American experience. It's very personal. It, I think you could find it in memoir or an essay, but each chapter can absolutely be read as an essay on its own. And Kathy Park Hong does a masterful job at really like going to source materials. And she talks about lots of other, um, it's not just, they're not just personal stories from her life. You know, she's thinking of uh, playwrights and other essayists and other art. And the work is very much in conversation with all those things. So I think that could be a really good comp. Depending on the tone, again, I would say look at Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino, which I think would be an excellent comp. I know that that's how every essay collection by a young person or a younger person, you know, in their 30s or so, that's very young to me, um, is there the Editors are comping Gia Tolentino to, to booksellers because that is a book that did so well. So I would look at Trick Mirror. I would look at Thick by Tressie McMillan Cotton, which is another wonderful essay collection. And then I would look at Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminist. So these aren't necessarily um, books that are all about, they're not about wrongful incarceration. They're not about mass incarceration, but they probably will have that same social justice impulse and the same tone, hopefully. There was a book that came out that, um, I know in 2017, when Hum made the Indies uh, introduce list mm-hmm. of uh, American Booksellers Association's favorite debuts, there was a book that came out from someone who was incarcerated, and it was a list of of essays. Um, and there was a lot of controversy as to whether he should have um, 
published that book at that time as well. Um, I remember a short story collection um, called The Gray Bar Hotel. That's it. Okay, so it was an essay. It's fiction, um, although it certainly reads very – I loved that book. Um, I'm 99% sure that it, that it is at least published as fiction, but I am sure that it drew heavily on his experience. I loved that book. Just remind right. us of the title. The Gray Bar Hotel by Curtis Dawkins. Yes. Yes, that's it. Of course you would know it, Emily. Thank you. (laughs) Quiz me. (laughs) So, uh, right. So for the rest of you who've been lurking and are waiting to submit your your comps, go to the website to look, um, follow the link there, leave your voicemail, and we will get one of our amazing, amazing independent booksellers to give you those comps. Uh, This week it was Emily Summer from East City Bookshop, um, which we absolutely love in Washington, D.C., So if you're there, absolutely stop in. And remember that if you shop on bookshop.org, you can still support an indie bookstore, even if, you know, you're somewhere else. You can nominate them to be benefiting from your um, purchases, which is why we have an affiliate page with them. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was absolutely a delight. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. 
and then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.